Good morning, afternoon, evening, whenever the hell it is you're listening to this. This is The Potato Files. I am your host, Jeff Paul, known as the Human Potato of Comedy. Not a great nickname to have, but, you know, I've embraced it. My guest this week is uh, one of my favorite people in the whole world. Uh, He's an actor. He's a comedian. He's just an all-around great fucking dude. Um, Sam Easton's here, guys. So, hi, hi, Sam. How you doing? Hello, Jeff. Thank you for having me. Hey, welcome to the Never Sleeps Network Studios. What do you think of our Never Sleeps bedroom? It's perfect. Having no. a bed right behind you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, that's in case the uh, in case the podcast goes really well. I take you to the bed, give you the what for, and uh... well, we're locking eyes right now. <laughs> Is this weirding you out? No, Just I'm staring comfortable. across the table at me. Always being comfortable with. <laughs> Erotica. You can look at the floor. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry. You won't be able to look at me later unless you uh, unzip the eye holes in that mask I'm going to put on you. Jesus. <laughs> wow. So you have big plans. I got big plans for you, baby. I thought we were just improvising. <laughs> we are. Um, I, you've uh, obviously never listened to the Potato Files, um, so you really don't know what it is, do you? I did uh, watch Hunter's live uh, <laughs> oh, yeah? feed. Yeah. Yeah. Was uh, impressed with... Yeah, Hunter's this, uh, upper body strength. This is, uh, I don't know, he's not doing the uh, the live feed this week, so who knows? Like, It's very distracting when it happens anyway. Okay. But yeah, pretty much what the thing is, is uh, we, we I, I just dissect you, and I, uh, I ask you all the questions that um, it would be weird if I asked you at a bar. All right. You know, like we're just sitting, hanging out, and I'd be like, hey, man, when did, uh, when did your first finger a girl at a bar? You'd be like, dude. That's inappropriate, but here I might ask you that. When when did you first finger a girl? It's a good question. <laughs> I think it was a baseball dugout, Penticton, British Columbia. Uh, I was at Okanagan Hockey School. Nice girl hockey player. No, no, they're they're those girls are heinous. <laughs> um, uh, no, just a local uh, uh, puck bunny. I believe oh, they, that's puck what they're called. You know what? Uh, I played lacrosse growing up. Uh, do you know what they call the uh, lacrosse girls? No. They're called uh, lacrosse-titutes. <laughs> oh, I like that. <laughs> yeah, that's a good yeah, one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll, get, we'll get to the sports later. Let's get, uh, we're going to start right from the beginning, pal. Sure. You're born out in BC? Yeah, born in Vancouver. Born in Vancouver. We got siblings? Uh, yeah, I have a... You're the first, the last? No, I have an older brother uh, with different dads. Okay. I have a younger sister, full. And then I have a, a step family um, where my... Younger stepbrother, about two and a half years. You know I, mean? I met him when he was seven. He's, he's like my brother. We're very close. Oh, that's good. That's and good. then I have two older step-siblings that, that I'm not as close with. I've got one stepbrother that uh, we just never really gelled. We came into our lives at different times, you know? Like, he was yeah. 12 and I was 15. And there's not, like, there's a weird gap at that age, you know? Yeah. Like, if he was 18, I was 21, it would have been fine. But it's just, what are you going to do, man? Yeah. Um. So... Your parents are not together anymore. No, it broke up when I was ten. And your who uh, who had the um, your half brother before they got together? Who was your mom's kid? Yeah, my mom had a a child die very tragically, and um, her husband and brother felt at fault for the accident and uh, couldn't handle the grief. My mom's brother followed a spiritual leader named Ram Dass down to Miami and. My mom's husband uh, couldn't handle the grief, went to India, moved to India, and um, my mom was just left alone with my brother in her stomach. Jesus. Yeah. And so my mom mourned for a couple of years. My mom's sister and her best friend packed up her stuff for a trip to Vegas, 
And she, she had not basically, you know, she'd just been in mourning. And it took her to Vegas, and that's when she met my pops, man. My parents met in Vegas. Fuck, I guess it's not all of it stays there then, eh? <laughs> <laughs> but I always have, a, like, I go to Vegas a lot. and if That's probably why you're such a fucking gambler. Well, I think about... <laughs> you're... <laughs> I think about how I wouldn't be here if it wasn't With for Vegas, Vegas. Vegas is why you're alive. Yeah. So my dad, first person to make her laugh. and Good, good, good. Yeah. Is your uh, your dad still alive? Yeah. Mom's still alive. I met yeah. her last summer. Yeah. She uh, she came out to a gig with us. Which, yeah. Uh, she... Turkey Point? Yeah, Turkey Point. Me, you, and Jared Campbell, which yeah. is hilarious because Campbell did not stop being Jared the entire drive. I was like, oh, um, Sam's mom's in the car. Let's be nice. And Jared's oh, just man. like, oh, fucking cocksucking fuck this shit. Oh, my mom's cool, man. My no, mom's- I know she's, she's cool as hell, but I, I still, uh, I have a, I have a different persona that I give parents. Oh, man. And Campbell does not have a different persona. My mom also came to your Dopin' Mike show. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I it was so funny because, uh, I went to pass you a joint, and uh, you weren't smoking at the time, but you were like, I don't want any, but could my mom have some? <laughs> like, your yeah. mom sure can, Sam. Yeah. Yeah, no, she's she's uh, incredible. We're very close. How often do you see her? Uh, well, I don't see her enough uh, right now because um, my fiance and I were trying to start a family, so I had to stay... Uh, close so i stopped touring out west ah. but i've only been out back out back in toronto for two years so you know when i when i'm home when i'm in vancouver i see her all the time but she's gonna be out here in a few weeks oh good 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 yeah well I, i'm gonna be in vancouver so she's probably gonna get out of town <laughs> she's already seen my fucking act she loves it <laughs> she loves it um what was uh growing up like Middle class, upper class. What were you guys? Your mom's a psychologist, is she? Uh, it was. Uh, I was uh, very fortunate uh, growing up. My dad was a lawyer. My mom, interdisciplinary doctor. They broke up when I was ten. My dad lived in Granville Island. My mom stayed, kept us on the North Shore. So I, I grew up in West Vancouver. Graduated from West Van High. Okay. Um, affluent society. I was given every opportunity in the world. And I misused, <laughs> I misplayed the opportunity I was given. Well, you're having fun though, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but if I could go back, make a couple changes. <laughs> a couple changes. Um, and as a, as a kid, you uh, you a little troublemaker? What are you doing? No, uh, not really, no. Uh, <clears throat> my brother was five years older than me, which was a problem. Um, so my high school was grade 7 to 12. So when I was grade 7, like... My birthday's October. I started grade seven. I was 11. And my brother was a cool guy in grade 12. And I was mm. his little mascot. And, and you just got taken around with him. I got taken around with him. I got in tr- I started, started getting in trouble in an early age, but it wasn't something that I was creating on my own. I hear you, man. I'm, uh, I'm the youngest of uh, three boys. And uh, my, uh, my brothers brought me to the party a little early. Yeah. My oldest brother, me and him, looked identical. We were five years apart, though. So when I was... Uh, like, I was 14, I had his ID, you know? I, I was getting it. into bars and it just... Oh, I could definitely not get into bars. I, <laughs> well, I, you still I, got I a baby st- face. I still look like a boy. Um, <laughs> but yeah, their parties were at our place. and I was just pushed into things uh, too early. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, it created a situation where I didn't need... Like, when I went off to school, when I went off to university, I didn't need... Like, I'd done all the partying I needed to do. So, yeah, some yeah. people who don't party in high school, they get carried away in university. Well, that's... I, I think um, you should party in high school. Like, if you get off the leash when you're 18, 19 years old, that's too old to break oh, yeah. out, you know? Oh, yeah. You got to start getting stupid, like 14, 15. 
Yeah, it was a strange community because uh, there was a lot of money in our community. There was a lot of cocaine being pushed. And uh, when I was like grade seven, eight, nine, I was always kind of the party guy. I was, you know, higher and drunker than everybody else. And I thought that was cool. And then grade 10 came along and it was all bathroom parties that I wasn't a part of. And <clears throat> I talked with my mom for hours about it, you know, her being a shrink and all that stuff about and we came to the realization that I was just jealous of them because I wasn't the most fucked up. I always thought being fucked up was a cool thing. Yeah, well, we all did. Yeah, and do. <laughs> um, but so I I stayed away from Coke, and it was because of, thank, thankfully, because I have an addictive personality. I'm sure it'd still be with me right now. Oh, that's why I never did cocaine, because I know I wouldn't stop doing it. Yeah, and my mom was very helpful <laughs> in realizing that. It was just a simple thing where I was just jealous because I wasn't the most fucked up guy at the party. Mm-hmm. Simple thing, so I stayed away from that. And then, um, were they pretty liberal with you guys? Like they, you're like, mom, I want to do coke in the bathroom, and you're a little kid. Oh yeah, we talk. We it was very open to talk about all things like that. I had a friend die in the summer going to grade eleven, and that um, threw me for a loop. It was a difficult uh, situation. His death was uh, obviously unexpected. It was. Um, it was at a uh, campground that mm-hmm. we all partied at. Yeah. So and he was, he died while partying. It was a very mysterious circumstances and uh, really threw my group of friends for a loop. And he he's the reason why I did my first stand-up set. Yeah. Because um, he would always talk about me being funny, me doing stand-up. And I, but it never even crossed my mind to actually try it until he died. And then I tried it. You're like, I'm going to kill this eulogy. <laughs> <laughs> um. But at that point, after he died, I didn't really want to talk to anybody or make new friends or anybody. I, I finished grade 11 at my school, and then I switched down the road to a different school for grade 12. I just, I kind of checked out mentally. And then as soon as I graduated, I left. I came out to Toronto. I went to York University. And okay. What about um, as a kid? you playing sports as a kid? Yeah, I was very big in sports. Uh, my dad was football, baseball coach. Hockey and soccer were my best sports. I tried um, to make it in hockey, and I, I just... I came to the realization in hockey that I'm, like, I'm not making the NHL. What the hell am I wasting my time for? I, I held on to it till I was about 15. Yeah, I was. Know? I think I was around 13 or 14 when I was like, I don't really give a shit about this. I cared. I just started getting pummeled. I started getting beaten up. And and I tried to get into a couple of rookie camps for uh, Junior A and, and the WHL and just couldn't, uh, just couldn't make the cuts and... Mm-hmm. Should have probably focused on soccer, um, but then when I graduated uh, high school, I, I just started focusing on like stand up and acting and sketch and improv, yeah. and and I enjoyed that a lot. And I I still follow sports very closely, but I don't. Um, I I know you are the most knowledgeable person of any sport I've ever seen in my life. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I uh, I st- like I I'm on different sites. Uh, oh, I know. Every day. I, I I always think of like the the stats they keep in baseball. Like they just. They're like, well, he's over two on a sunny day in July. I'm like, who are these stats for? And then I meet you, and I'm like, oh, all this stuff's for Sam. I yeah. get it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Baseball is my favorite sport because of the numbers. It wasn't until maybe the last ten years, but the numbers uh, excite me so much. And then horse racing is something that I <clears throat> love very much, and the numbers are also uh, integral um, to the sport. Mm-hmm. So when did you? Uh, how old were you? Stop playing hockey then. Uh, I played all the way through high school. I, I stopped at the end of grade 12. Okay. Have you played in uh, adult leagues at all? No. I stepped on the ice one time. I've been on the ice one time since I quit. 
Uh, one time I played for a, a comics team out in Vancouver called the Rat Dogs. And uh, I used to be really, I had a lot of composure on the ice and loved the puck and was relaxed with the puck. And then when I was out there, it was like hot potato. I, every time I got the puck, I was just screaming in my head. And <laughs> I played really poor. Well, you know, the first shift was actually pretty good. We, we, <laughs> we scored a goal. I was plus one. And then my second shift, I, I'm skating down, down the boards and a guy taps his stick behind me. And I figured that was probably my teammate. Yeah. And he so dropped I dropped puck. him the puck and then he went down the ice and scored. <laughs> and then I remember that old trick. That old trick. Yeah. <laughs> and then I could just see the glares from my teammates, you know? And then, uh, second period, I'm just, my feet are bleeding. I'm just breathing so heavy. I'm just playing terrible. And some guy on my team looks at me and goes, Hey, buddy, uh, Take off your neck guard. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, oh, you guys, you guys don't wear these anymore? <laughs> but it's league regulations. <laughs> you know, we all wear our neck guards together. So, uh, yeah, I took my neck guard off and it didn't help. Yeah, we all had to wear neck guards because some kid got cut with a blade. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that kid was Clint Malarchuk. Um, <laughs> I remember that. that oh, was man. a bloody mess on that ice. I watched Clint Malarchuk's 30 for 30. They did a documentary on him because oh, he, yeah? he shot himself. He tried to kill himself. He shot himself in the face and he lived. Really? That's the twist, eh? When you shoot yourself in the face and then you, you wake up to tell like, the story. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> like, oh, I'm not supposed to be here. <laughs> no. So Clint shot himself on his farm and, uh, and survived and he's a better man for it. That'd be weird, man. I would, uh, I would just reload the gun. Like, fuck, I failed. But I guess they say when people jump, they're like, I made a huge mistake. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, you know, su- suicide. It seems to be a bigger and bigger issue. Um, it feels like maybe it's just uh, because of the internet and stuff like that. But it, obviously, what we're dealing with the First Nations, the Indigenous people, uh, having such a, a horrible time with uh, with suicide. So it's a, not something that, that, you know, I want to make fun of. <clears throat> also in our business and stand-up, it seems to be a little bit more prevalent, I guess. I, I make a lot of suicide jokes in my act. And I've had people come up to me after like, hey, man, you're funny. Don't kill yourself. I'm like, oh, no, those are just jokes, man. Yeah. I've also had people come up and like, suicide jokes aren't funny. I'm like, well, people were laughing. She's like, well, I don't find them funny. I'm like... Yeah. Different strokes for different folks, man. Sometimes you'll write a joke just because you like a word, the word play in it, or you like, you just, but it turns out to be uh, very upsetting for people. <laughs> I'm an open minded guy, but uh, uh, I wrote this joke, and, it, and I'm like, I care about all people and all races. Like, I've always been someone who was taught that from a young age. Mm-hmm. And all my friends are different cultures, and my fiance is Vietnamese. Um, you know, so I mean, like, I'm, but <clears throat> I guess I wrote this joke and it was just a wordplay joke, uh, but it was a, it was racist joke about, uh, First Nations. And it, uh, the joke is, uh, uh, I would only be able to do it in September. And it was, um, they say we're going to have an Indian summer. So lock your doors. <laughs> and I did it a couple times and some people would laugh so hard at it, but some people would come up to me at the end of the show and I could see the anger in their eyes and the crying Indian. And so I stopped doing it. I was like, I, I do not want people to feel like I gotta. I do not want to hurt people up here while I'm doing stand up. I don't know. I have uh, I have a few jokes about Asian people, but they're not malicious or anything. Mm. I think if something's funny, it can just be funny. Like it well, all depends where it comes from. Like you can tell if there's hate behind something somebody's saying, or if it's just a lighthearted joke. You know, we're we're always going to upset some people in the crowd. And that's the thing. Because like I don't know, man. Maybe it's just because I'm white and I don't get it, but you got to be able to laugh at yourself, you know? 
Well, I mean, and I get it that I do have white privilege and that I've never been, you know, walked a mile in whatever shoes. I'm just maybe I'm just an insensitive prick. But I don't hate anyone. That's the thing. Like, I, don't, I well, I hate people, but I don't hate them for the color of their skin. I just hate them because they're people. <laughs> I hate yeah. a lot of white people well, too. I can, I can, I probably told that joke maybe let's say six or seven times, and I can remember clearly the people who were upset by it, and it really affected me. Mm-hmm. And one is a comic. One's a, a first name's comic that I, I think is you know funny guy, good guy. You didn't and like it? I forget exactly what he said to me, but he was hurt and upset, and it was just like, really, you, you're going to do this too? You're going to. So you don't mind if I use the joke? <laughs> People hate me already. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's funny. But I mean, we upset people often. Like, that's just part of it. Like, uh, and, and I recently got uh, LASIK eye surgery. And that that's negatively affected my shows. Because now, like, I can clearly see the disappointed faces. <laughs> you know? And I can pick people out who are really not having a good time, who are really upset. It's like when you get sent to these gigs where it's uh, it's not like a... Like, you're in a hall somewhere, and they don't have lighting, so the whole place is lit up. Oh, yeah. And you're just, you can see the people laughing, but you focus on the people that aren't. You're like, oh, yeah. Oh, right, man. That's why it should just be, the crowd should be dark. And then It's the, yeah, it's like the road gigs, man. The road gigs are, you know, non, non-traditional venues, and they light up the crowd. And <laughs> Oh, man, it's awful. It's awful. I, I have a joke in my act, you've probably seen it before, where I, I, pick, uh, I pick two people and imagine them having sex. Yeah. yeah. So I, I pick a girl. So I go. I'll go with you, you, and you. And I point to myself. Yep. Well, I learned early in that joke that I have to pick a really hot girl because if I pick a nasty chick, she will wait for me after the show. <laughs> if I pick a hot chick, she wants nothing to do with me, and, she, and I'll never see her again. Yeah. Get the one that's out of your league. Yeah. Always. Because <laughs> man, I was in Yellowknife. And uh, I just started just started telling the joke. Yeah, you must have been scanning that crowd pretty hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it was before I realized. Before I realized that I needed it was actually a couple, but it was on the same tour. It was on that same tour uh, because it was like there was one gig outside of Kelowna, and then Yellowknife. But both times, the girl was waiting for me. In Yellowknife, we were at a club, and she was in this red dress, and and I was with Damon Schroeder and. And she was dancing alone on the dance floor and giving me the finger to come over to her. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we, we took off and checked out the ice road. <laughs> I, um, I've had those instances, not, not in comedy, just, uh, just you, you pay, you, you give the girl in the bar that doesn't have any attention coming her way, you give her a little too much. And then she's just, she's like, get over here. Oh, and yeah. then you got a few drinks in you and you're like, yeah, I'll get over here. Let's do yeah. this. Well, also, it's kind of funny to hear what, because I mean, I don't have, I don't ha- get a lot of suitors, you know? <laughs> and I've been in a relationship for a long time. But it's funny when, like, because I had this, where was I in, uh, where was I? Somewhere. Lloyd Minster, I think it was Lloyd Minster, like on the border of Saskatchewan, Alberta. Mm-hmm. And I had a girl with these tats all over and she was big and tough and scary. And she, she was, uh, or I'll, she's like, I'll take you back to my place and we fuck and we fuck real good. <laughs> and I, I thought it was so funny that I kept it going, you know, just because I wanted to hear. But then my buddies hear the conversation and I'm having, they're like, Sam, what's, what happened, man? I thought, that you cared about th- are you engaged you? <laughs> but i just wanted to hear the horrifying things she wanted me yeah, to do to yeah. her we're we're very intrigued by these things it's very uh very fun it's weird because i uh being in a relationship 
and doing comedy, there's times when you're just like, girls are talking to you and you're like, oh, wait, oh, they want to, they want to fuck. And you're just like, you have to defuse the situation. Well, and yeah. I, I, but it's just, it's, it's weird that like, cause I always forget that there is that element of, you can make somebody laugh and they'll, they'll want in your pants, you know? It's wild. Yeah. I, almost every, uh, girlfriend, all my girlfriends were, uh, servers generally at comedy clubs because <laughs> they were the only people that you know they watch you on stage they think you're much cooler than you are yeah because that last that last after i mean i remember when i was really struggling uh um before i booked any like film and tv when i was in vancouver i was like maybe 21 and holes in my shoes struggling mm-hmm. and uh and you know i'd have to borrow two bucks just to take the bus down to the show but i would do the show i get two drinks two free drinks or whatever and and for about 20 minutes, half an hour after the show, I could still kind of feel like the coolest guy in the room. And then a girl would say, why don't we go to this bar? And I'd always pretend I had something better to do, you know, <laughs> to try to keep that <laughs> keep that legacy going, man. Because as soon as we'd go to a different bar, I would have no money and then it would all go downhill fast. I had this girl uh, like a couple of months ago. Kira was away and uh, we were all out drinking after a show and I... I was talking to one of the comics about they're like oh where's Kira? i'm like oh she's in florida um and i probably made a joke like well no rules she's in different area code and then uh everyone was kind of leaving and i still had a, a drink and this girl was like with her friend she's like oh i'll just stay with you and we can finish that and when she said it like the way she said it i'm like oh i remember that and i was just like I went, oh, no, 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 that's a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> she was like, excuse me? I'm like, no, let's all just leave now. <laughs> uh, well, those opportunities are, are going away. Uh, <laughs> we're not, as we get older, they will become less and less. Hey, I can still not get laid on the road, but you know, still feel pretty good about myself. <laughs> oh, man, yeah. The first time is hooking up with girls on the road were the greatest experiences in my life, man. The first night I ever did comedy, I had sex with the host. Yeah, not the host of the show. <laughs> yeah, she host uh, at the it, at the room. Like the no, the chick, the chick who ran the show. Oh jeez, put me on her show. It was the oh. first time I ever did comedy, and I took her back to my place after. Wow, that's uh, that's impressive. That's an introduction into comedy. Like that's yeah, let's impressive. Do this, <laughs> man. I actually, you know, what's crazy. I hooked up. I hooked up a girl first time I ever did a road gig my whole life. I, I remember it so well. It was uh, I was opening for Richard Lett, <laughs> which is like a rite of passage. <laughs> For a young uh, comic, young comic, <laughs> yeah, uh, and the gig was in Rutland, and uh, I mean she was uh, working the, the at the hotel, um, at the reception desk or whatever, and we talked her on the way in, and then on the way out, I was like, "Come by the show." So I'm at the show and I'm struggling, struggling mightily, and there's a bunch of Hell's Angels in the back, and like 20 minutes of struggles, and these guys are playing pool, and then I guess like. The one the tougher guy or the leader or something said to them, uh, he goes, stop playing pool, listen to the kid for a minute. And they stopped playing pool. And then I, I might have got maybe three or four minutes of laughs. Yeah. But she she came in, right? She didn't see me bomb for 20 <laughs> minutes. She just saw the Hells Angel guy tell him to stop playing and then me get like three or four minutes of laughs. And then I get applause, bring on Richard, and then the Hells Angel guy buys me a shot. So she only saw that like five minutes yeah. and thought I was a superstar. <laughs> and it was just magical. Oh, that's great. I was lucky. Um, let's uh, backtrack here to the beginning. When did you, you moved to Toronto after high school and you went to York? 
Yeah, I went to York University uh, Theater School. Theater School. Yeah. Um, so it was 1997. Uh, Brian Hatt was in my class. Ennis Esmer, uh, Rachel McAdams. Uh, and at the so they, they bring in like 120 people. And then at the end of first year, you decide what you want to focus on. I wanted to focus on acting. And then they accept like 18 people or 17 people. And they kind of cut each year. And um, I did not get accepted into into acting. The um, at the time, I didn't realize that like I can't sing and dance. You know, I'm not like a thespian. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I that's what I wanted to do. So I was really hurt, and dejected, and then they opened up like a, a scene study uh, focus group, and I was in that for a year. And then I auditioned again. And I didn't get in again, and I was like, um, you know, f- fuck this, man. I'm not gonna. I'm not. So I, I started doing stand up. So you just you dropped out of school. Dropped out of school. Uh, I did the one week summer program at Humber. Okay. And then I did the first year of Humber in 2000 with Jason Rouse, Mark Forward, Deborah DiGiovanni. First year comedy class there. The first year there, yeah, in 2000. And it was just a one year program. I did that for like uh, eight months or so. You finished that? I finished that, but. Um, they put you on stage during that? or? Oh, yeah. But I mean, Jason Rouse was in our in class, so I just followed Jason Rouse wherever he went. Just following him to all the clubs was a way better class than what was actually taking place in the class. Um, he's older than you. Like he's yeah. yeah. We're around the same age. He's way older, isn't he? Yeah, he's like, what five years older than me? I, don't know. I think he's like mid forties. Yeah, I'm thirty seven. I don't think he's he's definitely not more than five or six years older than me. Well, I don't know. I think I asked him. I had him on the show. I kind of like. But something happened to me during the the uh, so the first like three months were the best three months I've ever had in any school. I was so excited to be doing everything. I, and I was, you know, felt like I was doing a good job, uh, improving really well, felt really comfortable. was learning how to stand up. I mean, Larry Horowitz uh, was our teacher and he could, uh, he would always just say, it's, it's so surreal. I really, really don't know what to say. So I just stopped doing stand up in his class. I was like, well, you know, I do it every night. And every time I go up, you just tell me it's surreal and, and whatever. So I'm just going to not do stand up anymore. And then everybody stopped doing stand up in this class and it caused a bit of a problem. But that was the problem. So I went home for Christmas. I was living with my girlfriend out here. So I'd be, been in Toronto for three years. I'm like 20, 1920. 19, 19, and then uh, on New Year's, Millennium New Year's, uh, I was at a bar at like three in the morning. I see my best friend go flying. Um, and then like three of my biggest friends kind of came in. There was maybe about. 12 13 of the of these guys i didn't know and then four of my friends and i'm not i won't get into any details um to plead the fifth <laughs> but um i got arrested for assault with a weapon i didn't know any of these guys mm-hmm. the guy who got messed up um who i didn't know was big in the drug trade out there i'd never met him. i didn't know anything about him but i heard stuff about how um if i open my mouth about him at all you know he would get me and and he didn't charge me i was charged by the crown right and um so i came back to toronto and i i told all the cops everything about what i'd learned from this guy and long long short i came back to vancouver and i was gonna have to come back and appear in court in the first week of february and i just felt like the whole world had come crashing down on me like mm-hmm. I, I couldn't improvise i could no longer improvise i could no longer do i could no longer I, I thought this guy was going to come get me. Like, I was just a mess. I was a total mess. <laughs> and um, I remember, like, uh, Mark Ford was in our class, and he's he's the best improviser I've ever worked with. And if you create a table or whatever in your scene and then walk through the table, he would say, you just broke my table or whatever. You know, yeah. he was so sharp 
And so I just, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't improvise with them. I wouldn't, <laughs> if they said, Sam, Ma- you and Mark go to the scene, I'd say, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing improv with this guy. Maniac. <laughs> you know? And I just stopped doing everything. So, so the last four, so long and short of it, uh, the charges got dropped. I hired an ex-cop to like investigate the other guy because I didn't know these guys. I didn't know anything, whatever. Uh, it's a dicey story. <laughs> you, you got through it though. I got through it. Charges got dropped. Thank God, because I would never have been able to work in the States. Mm-hmm. Charges got dropped. But then I was a mess for the last four years of Humber, or four months of Humber. So the first three or four months, I was great. And the last four months, I was terrible. So I, I got I won the Phil Hartman Award out of that program, and I didn't really deserve it. I deserved it for maybe the first four months of the year, but surely the last four months of the year, I had mm-hmm. lost, uh, lost it along the way. And what do you do after Humber then? Well, um, Mike Breslin was managing the club back then, uh, the club at Young and Eglinton. And, Who's um, Mike? His Mike brother? Breslin. No, he was, I think he was like a second cousin of Mark's or something. He, he's a, a wonderful guy who I became very close with. He ended up opening up the Vancouver Yuck Yucks. Okay. He was an incredible guy. We became very close with. He ended up, uh, he was sick a lot, getting sicker and sicker, and no one could figure out what it was And while he was running the club out there. It turned out to be bone marrow cancer, and uh, he passed away... A few months before Irwin, so I don't know, like twenty ten maybe. I was trying to get on fast track at Yucks, and and there was people ahead of me. Gilson Lubin was ahead of me, but wasn't fast track. And I knew that Mike wanted Gilson to be fast track. But when I won the Hartman Award, I just went into Breslin's office, and I was like, to Mark Breslin's office, I was like, listen, uh, now you have to fast track me. So they fast tracked me ahead of Gilson, which probably wasn't right. And I knew Mike wanted Gilson, so I was afraid of Mike. And even though Gilson and I were friends, I, he Gilson probably deserved it more than me. But I got fast tracked there, and and I was having such a difficult time uh, getting more material. Because when I started, they said that um, a white middle class heterosexual comedian is uh, a dying breed in stand up comedy, and no one wants to hear what they have to say or whatever. So I was always trying to be like outside the box and be just. I I didn't. Uh, I respected observational humor and Seinfeld and stuff, but I, I didn't want to do anything like that. I wanted to be so far away from that stuff, and I was having such a tough time getting more material and, and I started split middling and I was just not moving fast enough. And, and I was, um, I just picked up and left. I, uh, summer of 2001, I went back home to Vancouver and that's when, once I went back to Vancouver, that's when I got success in film and TV. I booked a bunch of commercials in Toronto. So maybe I did nine or 10 commercials, mm-hmm. but I couldn't get a TV or film audition this, you know, uh, at all. And so I went to Vancouver and, and, you know, the comics around there, uh, Kevin Fox hooked me up with, a an agent and um i booked like f- five or six smaller roles and is it I, more opportunity out there for film and tv you think i just think it changes constantly yeah. it just constantly changes so there's times when it all depends on what sort of tax benefits and all that stuff uh, um it just it's always changing but at that time at that time it just really it's something connected for me in, in, the, in getting the film and tv opportunity i didn't want to do commercials anymore and i wanted real opportunities and then i booked uh after like five or six small roles, I booked my first movie, like a big role in movie. That was five weeks Vancouver, five weeks in LA, and then. Um, do you, I, do you, are you still doing stand up through this whole time? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I always thought you know stand up took me to the dance, and mm-hmm. also when, when you're shooting film and TV, you have more confidence with your stand up because you know you're making money, you're feeling good, and um, you have a bit of a kick in your step, uh, confidence. Your first IMDb credit is The Dead Zone. Yeah. Is that, um, what's his name, Anthony Michael Hall? Yeah, yeah, he was a sweetheart. <laughs> he was such a kind guy, such a good guy. He really helped me. I couldn't believe his transfor- transformation from, like, 
he was like the nerdy high school kid. And then uh, one day I saw him in um, Edward Scissorhands, and he was like the big jock. Yeah. And I'm like, Anthony Michael Hall, what the hell? I'd never done anything before. That was my first ever thing. And I told Anthony, I was like, I've never, this is my first ever thing. And so, and I'd never done it. So I didn't know exactly how it worked. But the first scene that we did was on, Anthony Michael Hall was a teacher and it was on him. All the cameras were on him and I gave my lines to him. But then they moved all the cameras around and it was on me. And there was no Anthony Michael to do my lines to. Oh, he had somebody come in to do it? No, there was just nobody there. I had to do my lines to nobody. Oh. And I just, I panicked. I was like, and then he saw that I was just so scared and flustered. I had no <laughs> idea. And then he used his hand behind the cameras so I could follow his hand mm-hmm. and completely saved me. And they moved so fast in TV. I did you got to get that episode out. I did a TV's terrible schedule. I did a terrible job. And they were like, all right, we got it. And I was like, no, impossible. Let me do it again. They're like, no, nah, we got it. And I was like, all right. Would you have one line? One oh, scene? No, no, I had a bunch of, a few scenes. Yeah. yeah. It was great. What was the episode about? Oh, it was a wild episode. It was when the uh, the hockey player, played by Masterson, the, the Scientologist, um, who uh, might be up for uh, some sex assault charges right now. Oh, good for him. Um, Masterson. Uh, this was from the movie. It was actually from the movie. It's when he's skating on the ice. And he breaks through the ice. The ice is going to break. And he, and in full in full equipment, uh, sinks to the bottom or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that image has stuck with me my whole life of the <laughs> hockey player sinking. Uh, so that was the episode. Yeah. Um. So that show they just did right from the like they did stories from the movie. Yeah. That movie was filmed in my hometown. Oh, was it? Yeah, Niagara on the Lake. And then I, uh, I used that clip uh, of walking every year for uh, the Icebreakers Festival. Oh, nice. When he's just like, the ice is going to break. Yeah. Okay, it was done here. Why not? <laughs> yeah, it was great. It was so great. Um, it's so hard to get your first role. Mm-hmm. My, my first and only role, I was, I was in a uh, promo for CTV, where I still work. I improvised everything. I wasn't even supposed to talk. And then he's like, hey, why don't you just ad-lib some stuff in front of the camera? And then they end up put, put me in. Oh, yeah. And uh, he's like, oh, we got to pay you more because you're whatever. My little rant made the cut. I was like, giddy up. Oh, that's great. Yeah. When, when, when uh, I always found when, I mean, if you're if you're shooting a movie that Woody Allen wrote, you're not going to improvise. Mm-hmm. But when you're shooting, a, you, you know right away if the directors and the producers really respect the dialogue. And you can tell right away whether they want you to kind of fool around. and. Let's- um, my favorite movie, Big Lebowski. Yeah. There's one ad lib in the entire movie. Everything else, they're like, no, 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 stick to the script. Yeah, because it's a brilliant writer. I mean, that you know before you get yourself into it if whether this writer is some something that they really care about. Because like, um, Final Destination Three, I'm barely in the script. If you read the script, I'm in like, you know, it's a 125 page script. I'm in like five pages, six pages. And when you see the movie, like I'm in a lot. Like you know, they just they kept all my scenes and also they liked me just making up whatever I wanted. Like this mm. all, they just like gave me free reign to fool around. Really the writer wasn't uh, really holding tight to that script. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. So but, this is a franchise here for a reason. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I've, most of the stuff I've ever, I've done, like I did a series called the mountain and uh, I remember that I got so lucky with the mountain. I, it was a funny year. It was like, I think it was, Oh, four. Oh, four, five episodes. You were Blake. Yeah, I was in the mountain. And then I had the L word the same year. 
Uh, in 04. Yeah, another five. No, well, this is 2005, but five episodes. Gomi. Gomi, yeah. Um, and so it was such... So, Are these Vancouver roles or LA? Vancouver. Okay. Um, so with, with The Mountain, they I was the third choice for two guys. And uh, the, the guys were in the first episode and then they weren't in the next two episodes. And one of the guys was like, you know, fuck it. And took off to London, England to be in a play. And so, because he left, I got to come in, episode four, I don't know, five episodes, whatever they say I did there, but it was great. Um, but then the L word, my role just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then they fired uh, my best friend in the show. And when they fired him, my st- our storyline disappears. Oh, yeah, because why are you coming around still? Yeah, so he cost me so much money, but then I got so lucky in the first half, in the first show to make money so everything kind of comes full circle mm-hmm. your life will never get too good uh when do you shoot down to la then uh well i was i went down in 02 and it was just a waste of time and then i went down in 03 with underclassmen because it was shot for five weeks in la so they put me up in le montrose and beverly hills for five weeks two of the weeks i had to go one day i had one day and the rest of the time i was just chilling in this <laughs> it was the best five weeks of my life um <laughs> and then i got management down there and agents it's pretty wild i I went into Three Arts because I knew of of Dave Becky and at uh, Three Arts and and I, and so I went down to Three Arts with a VHS tape, and I said to to the receptionist, I was like, uh, "Could you uh, give this tape to Dave Becky?" And she goes, "It doesn't work like that." And and I knew this trick from my own going to my own agents is that you always go to agents' office at about four o'clock, four thirty. You never, you never go. You go when their day's almost over. <laughs> if you go at like ten or eleven a.m., they, they won't have a second for you. You know they're doing actual work. But if you go there at four thirty, you <laughs> might get a chance. That. Yeah. And I could see Dave Becky standing there, and I was like, "Well, he's right there." And she goes, "So?" And I, so I just look at him. I was like, "Hey, Dave, you want to see my tape?" <laughs> and he goes, uh, "He goes, who are you?" <laughs> and I was like, "Ah, I'm a secret weapon, man. I'm starring in a movie right now as we speak, and nobody knows I exist." <laughs> and he said. Yeah, come into my office. And so I went to his office, talked for like an hour. Then he's like, we'd like to see you do stand-up. I was like, bring in the secretaries, you know? And then he's like, well, why don't we put you up at the comedy store tonight? So I went there at 4.30 in the afternoon to Three Arts. And at 9, at night, I was at the comedy store for the first time. Went on right before Polly Shore. How are your nerves? I was like, it was my Broadway debut. yeah. I was not nervous. It was like my chance. Mm-hmm. Becky was there. Everyone knew that Becky and, and a couple other people were there. Uh, his uh, Another guy named Angie Nini from Three Arts, they were there. And everyone knew they were there because of me. So everyone was treating me well. And then I went, there was, it was a Tuesday night. There, it was the front room. There was 20 people. So people are bombing, 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 <laughs> right? And I just went on like it was the biggest show of my life. And, and that exuberance just comes across. People feel good, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. And so I was just so happy and so excited that, it didn't matter that my jokes were below average, you know, yeah. they were just like, whatever they loved. It was great. It was a great set. And then Polly Shore came on after me and made fun of me the whole time. <laughs> just talked about, you know, where, how, uh, that youthful hope is all gone. How old are you at this point? 23. I was 23. Yeah. And then signed with three, I signed with Becky right after that. And that was probably a mistake. I had nothing to manage and Mm-hmm. That became overwhelming just because I'd, I'd be in his office, hear the stuff he was talking about, and I'd be like, what What, what am I doing? It'd probably be better to have an assistant, yeah. you know, who would actually be more focused or whatever. But yeah, so then um, shot underclassmen down there, and then 
stayed in LA for a while and then this underclassman that's a Nick Cannon movie yeah it's unwatchable it's just awful do you keep a copy of that no but it's on it's on Netflix don't watch it oh no I'm going home to watch it tonight oh it's really I bad. encourage you all it's really it's, bad um, give it the star rating it deserves oh it's it's awful oh Sean Ashmore was in that yeah who's a good Canadian actor isn't he yeah uh he played Terry Fox yeah, no, he, he, he's a really nice guy. Uh, he's also from out here. We have the same birth date. And he's got a twin brother who does a lot of stuff to Aaron Ashmore. And Sean's, Sean's had a really good career. He'd just done X-Men. So he was like big uh-huh. when he did it. When we shot that movie, when we shot Underclassman, we thought it was Miramax. We thought this was just going to make us all stars. Nobody was saying my name. My name in that movie is Oliver Horn. And nobody was saying my name. And I was like, man, if this is a huge movie, you know, if this is a huge, huge, you know, no one's going to be like, oh, there's that guy from the movie. So I started bringing uh, $50 bills to set. And, and I, if you said my name in the scene, I'd give you 50 bucks or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and that that dumb shit uh, helped me with Final Destination 3. Because when I did Final, Final Destination 3 in 05, I was like, I was, because I, I ran, um, I was in LA, I auditioned for that in LA and, and uh I lived really close to Christina Walkinshaw. I went down to Walkinshaw's place to run the lines before I went down. And I, and I told Christ, Christina, I was like, listen, uh, I want to say my name in every scene so that everybody knows. At the time, I ended up being Frankie Cheeks. At the time, it was Scotty Cheek. And I got them to add the S because it just sounds so much better. I was like, Frankie Cheeks likes that, ladies, you know? <laughs> but uh, Scotty Cheeks, so I would just say, uh, I would say my name in every scene. And it was so stupid. It was just shameless self-promotion. But they thought it was funny. And they yeah, kept just it in a guy there. who talks from, as a, refers to himself in the third person. Yeah. and I, But I, I remember that audition so well. I, I was running out of money, and I walked to the audition. And from Christina's, I misjudged how long it was going to be. It was like about an hour, 45-minute walk to the audition. You get there sweaty as fuck? No, it was worse. It started raining. Oh. So, like, my pants were wet. I was wet. And then, like, I, you know, I called my mom. I'm like, this is awful. I'm not going to go in there, you know. And she's like, don't worry. You should, you know, the motherly thing. Don't worry. The sun will come out. Just keep walking. <laughs> and it did. Sun came out. And so I'm about, I'm not, I'm pretty close. It's by Washington Boulevard. I'm pretty close to the, to the spot. And I'm talking to my mom and I see like, like five scary looking 12 year olds walking towards me and 12 year olds man they will they will get you no, it's not like canada man 12 year olds will get you in the states man they will they will take your shit and i knew it and uh i was i was like i always i ran i ran a lot i ran away from things all the time when i was in la because i walked everywhere and and I started like I I started you just go, see shit happening. You're like ah, I better move, run. Uh, all, I would hear this. I would hear um, hey dude, and I would <laughs> you're bolt. gone. <laughs> I would bolt. I would bolt, man. Echo Park Boulevard, man. Uh, my my stepbrother, art director down in L.A., and he lived at the top of Echo Park Boulevard. It's like a like a hill, like a mountain sort of, and he would drive off that one side right onto the highway. But I had to walk down Echo Park Boulevard to get to a bus. And uh, I must have run three or four times. I got egged on day four of being down there. And they didn't hide. They just pummeled me. throw the egg and fuck you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, the only guy who would smile at me was the the security guard at the bank. And I knew he was just like, the fuck are you doing here? It was rough. Uh, But I I remember going in to the audition. So I always think that um, your frame of mind before an audition is key. 
it's so important. And I've lost that uh, ability to have this uh, unwavering confidence. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was such an important part of me booking things back then. Uh, I was just so confident. And, and I went Confidence in- shines through a lot. Like totally. If you get on stage, I've gotten on stage for like showcases where like all the festival people are there. And I'm like, I don't think these jokes are any good, but I'm going to go sell them with my confidence. And you just- it resonates, mm-hmm. but yeah. if you go up there and like, oh, uh, and you say your jokes, people are gonna, people feel what you're giving out. Oh, totally. I uh, I remember. So I, I remember I walked into that audition room and there was all these like they looked like male models. You know, they all look like male models. And you're dripping wet, <laughs> and I was like, you fucking loser! <laughs> like nobody wants to see your fake ass fucking pretty boy face. You pack of fucking losers, you know? And now when I see, like, good-looking guys in the audition room, I'm like, man, these guys are so good-looking. Like, I've just lost the, I've lost that edge, man. Well, I remember I was talking to Tim Steves about, uh, he got a couple callbacks for Friends back in the day. Oh, wow. And originally he was, uh, he auditioned for Joey, and he said the, the casting room was just male models and, like, yeah. just good-looking people. And then they, uh, they're like, okay, well, you we're, we're not interested in this, but would you like to... Would you like to audition for Chandler? And then he said, he was like, yeah. And then he said he got into the room. He's like, I was the, probably the best looking guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One thing that started messing with my confidence was Final Destination 3 because I had been on hold for the lead role, not lead role, the Ryan Reynolds brother in... Uh, Just Friends? That Just one? Friends, yeah. yeah. And so it was a really big deal. It was in 05. And I thought, every, like I knew a couple of friends of mine knew the producers because it was a co-production and they were like you got this role man you got and it's like cheers to me man can't you know and then i'm on hold two weeks go by i'm like what's going on they're like dude uh the head of new line cinema doesn't does not want you want somebody else for the role you're slipping and then a week or two later they're like no they who ended up getting there i forget his name now but i met the guy and he's a nice guy and uh I forgot the guy's name now. But, um, the first thing I ever auditioned for, well, I didn't even know. It was a thing at CTV again. And it was uh, it was before I got the other thing I did. But uh, um, this producer put up a thing in like a bulletin board and was uh, like, hey, if you'd want to, you know, uh, we're looking to cast this thing. So I went down there and uh, did a little audition or whatever. I, no, I just talked to him. And then a week later, he sent me. A, he's like, "Now nah, we went with a professionally trained actor, and it turned out to be uh, Jeff McHenry." <laughs> oh, okay. And he did like it was like this series of promos for Christmas. Oh, that's cool. Um, for CTV, and then uh, and then I remember I saw him at Yuck Yucks. Uh, I think before I even started doing comedy, I'm like, "That's the fucking guy." Yeah. And then I had him on this podcast, and we talked about it, and he was like, "Oh yeah, boss, I was not professionally trained at all." <laughs> like, yeah. Son yeah. of a bitch. <laughs> yeah, uh, Jeff's great, but yeah, but with Final Destination Three, it was the same. It was New Line again, and uh, the directors wanted me, and the exact same guy, uh, the head of New Line, I believe his name is Brandon David Brandon. But he uh, he did not want. He said that uh, the personal thing, you think, or he just I'd never met him or anything. I don't know. Mm. He just he told my agent in Vancouver, who probably shouldn't have told me this, but he told my agent because I had a shaved head back then. I always rocked shaved head, and uh, he told my agent that Sam Easton has a receding hairline and can't play high school students, (laughs) and that just like. I, I mean, I, I always had the corners, you know, yeah. but that just rocked me. I was 25 and I was like, what? <laughs> you know, they're going to take this role. I've ever seen what? And that got in my head. So then they 
wanted so i and i was just i it really rocked me i i, I bought a flight home from la i was like fuck this i'm just gonna go home for a bit and and they my agents down in la were really mad that i'd left and and so then they they taped me at yuck yucks and then they also came and um i did another audition for them and this time i put fake hairline in <laughs> fake hairline in, and um i i got the part or whatever but then there's only then they made me wear a hat in every scene. They took me out of the high school scene, and then um, there's one scene uh, at a funeral where I'm not wearing a hat, and they put fake hairline on me, and it looks great, <laughs> but it fucking rocked me. It just rocked my. I was like, oh my god, I'm just this. How are you going with the uh, hair now? I don't know, man. Not well. Um, but like I can see that it's it's not a full head, but it's still you still got hair. You still, still got hair. Got something to manage, but like. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, emotionally, how, how do you deal with that oh, now? Oh, God, I'm 37. I've pretty much given up on life, man. I, <laughs> it doesn't bother me in the slightest, man. I couldn't, couldn't care less now. But when I was 25, it was really mm-hmm. bothersome. I mean, but even like when I was like, I started going gray at like 30, 29, 30, and I was like, oh, maybe earlier than that, 27, 28. And I was like, oh, I'm too young. I can't. Because I, I still played, like when I was 25, I was playing 19-year-olds. And then how was I going to make the jump to a dad? Because like I'm 37 right now and can't be a, play a dad. Mm-hmm. I'm in like this no man's land, um, like a fucking boy's face with a old man's hairline. You know, it's just a, it's a. What about your facial? Can you grow that in? Yeah, I can grow that in. Like thick? I can grow it in thick, but every single audition I go to, everybody's got beards. Mm. So I don't want to be one of them. Hey, nothing wrong with a beard, pal. Hey man, it, I just, it hides this uh, lovely chin line. I know. <laughs> I know. Uh, I, yeah, I don't want to. Don't want to rock that. But I want to talk about. Uh, you're saying you're handing out fifty bucks for people to say your name. You, yeah. uh, you, you were not good with your money back then, were you? No, I was. Uh, well, I don't know what's good, man. I don't, well, I, I had think the time in my life. Yeah, you're you're having a good time. I don't. Uh, I think I'm. 37 i just bought my first rsp you know like yeah uh but i've pretty much i still try to spend what i make and if i'm making more i'm spending more i don't know i i get excited i get really excited and i and i do it up um so like when i was in la i did the dumbest shit i was going to lakers games and I had a white escalade that i rented for five weeks <laughs> it's the stupidest shit it was so dumb but i was having time in my life i was great yeah but i blew all that money so fast uh, so well, you think more is coming. That's the whole thing. Yeah. And this is just like, well, this is the start. Let's have a good time. I thought I'd keep making more money every year. And I did until 06. 06 was when Final Destination 3 came out. Yeah. 03, 04, 05. 02, 03, 04, 05. I kept making more money. And then 06, I made 10% of what I made in 05. And then I got into tax trouble. And it was just like a, a, a downward spiral. And that you, you, uh, you left LA then? Yeah. I left LA. I, well, see, the Final Destination 3 was shot in Vancouver. And I had had no fixed address for four years, for three years and 11 months. But I used to, I, I loved writing no fixed in all, at all on my auditions, you know? Mm-hmm. I thought it was cool, man. I was just doing stand up on yeah. the road. You know, I didn't need a place to keep my shit, you know? Uh, but then you got after, rented escalades to haul your shit around. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. <laughs> Sleeping there. But so then I, after Final Destination 3, I got, like, I got an apartment in Vancouver and. Everything was good for a little bit. You told me one time, what was, uh, you ate a steak dinner for how many nights in a row? Oh my God. Um, I don't know, 75 or 80 straight nights. <laughs> Just a steak dinner. <laughs> every single night at the, the, the restaurant above the Yuck Yucks in Vancouver. Every single night by myself. 
Jeez. And then I couldn't eat steak for like about a year. What, what, like, what's going through your head on day eight? <laughs> I'd made it. <laughs> I'm just gonna I made it, man. And those those were the best days I ever had. When you go from holes in your shoes to like mm-hmm. the the extreme, that's why I blew all the money because I'd been so poor, and I'd been I was a yeah like you're a, poor and you're like fuck when I get some money. But also I was like a, people looked at you know dropping out of school, trying to do stand up and all that like you're a screw up or you're a failure or all yeah, that stuff. Now look at me now, fucking yeah. driving by in my Escalade. Yeah, and it was. <laughs> It was uh, it was wonderful, but it was really short sighted. Um, I didn't realize that how difficult this business was and how important it is to save for the future. Speaking of money, because uh, you said you you came from a, a well off, well to do family. Yeah. Um, was it like a decision your parents made? Where like if you want to do this, you're on your own, or were they there if you got in a real bad bind? Well, I think my mom would never let me be on the streets, but then. Other comedians won't let you be on the streets. Yeah. So when I was my poorest, you know, from like 20 to 23 to 24, sort of, uh, I had comics feeding me and letting me crash on their couch and looking out for me. But I mean, but my, you're not calling home and getting loans every week. Oh, no. Like, I've, there's comics we know that are just mom and dad are flipping the bill. You're like, how is this person out there every night? I'm like, oh, because I, I could live off of almost nothing. And I also uh, played poker, and there was lots of poker games in Vancouver at the time. I just I had a pretty I had an okay run in poker that was kind of keeping me eating mm-hmm. and drinking, and and I smoked, which I don't anymore. Um, so yeah, I I played car. I was I was gambling. So when you gamble, uh, it ebbs and flows, and highs and lows, and mm-hmm. but yeah. So I I mean I was playing cards to most of the time to eat and some of that. After every stand-up show, there was a card game. Was that gambling an addiction? I don't, I don't know. Were you doing it to make money, or were you doing it to chase the uh, chase the thrill? I don't know. That's a good question. It depends who you ask. <laughs> <laughs> um, I come. I gambling is in my family, but it's something that my dad wanted to stop. Alcoholism is in my family. My dad wanted that to stop. You know, my dad took me to the horse track all the time, and you know when I was. F- four, five, six years old, mm-hmm. up until I left and taught me everything about the track and about studying horses and all that stuff. So if you really wanted to stop, you probably shouldn't have taken me to the track. Yeah. Because now I am uh, I love it. Are you, um, when you go to the track, is it like reminiscent of your dad taking you there or is it just a whole new thrill for you to? I uh, Now I just, um, I, I like being at track alone. I just let everything, all any problem in my life go, and I have the time in my life. I don't. I think there's something about I get off a bit being with like the dredges of society, like the people at the horse track are generally really messed up people, and I get off on that for whatever reason. I I don't talk to anybody at the horse track, but I watch people and I watch them lose their minds, and and I like it, and I don't worry about anything else. I don't think about what's going on in my life. I just focus on the ponies man do you have a do you have a set budget when you go into these things or do you do you ever crap out and just look over at the atm and go well i can take a bit more out i i used to do that but now i'm engaged and trying to start a life well i remember i because uh we used to like i grew up in niagara we had the casinos there casino we'd go uh across the uh 
across the border to uh, Seneca. Seneca. Yeah. Because you could drink for free when you're gambling. Yeah, it's the only, only casino outside of Vegas Yeah, unless you drink for free. And then, like, you just, uh, you get busted out at a table and then just look over like, oh, well, there's a bank machine right here. I'll just take more money out. Yeah. And you also have Fort Erie horse track down there, which is pretty sweet. I like that place a lot. Um, you know what? Uh, horses for me is fun. Mm-hmm. I don't play the horses to make money. I, I've been on sports and play poker and that, and that, I do that to make money. My, that was one very important lesson my dad taught me was that horse racing has to be for fun. Uh, if, if you, we're talking about like the, a dirt, like the Kentucky Derby or the Preakness or yeah. Belmont or the Breeders' Cup, you, then you're studying these horses for months and you can make really smart decisions. But when I go up to Woodbine on a Wednesday night, there's going to be a ten- buying names. You're like, oh, that name's well, funny. Well, no, Let's I, I study. I study the horses. I study all the numbers. But uh, we're talking about ten thousand dollar claimers that who knows what's going to happen. Like you can't. We're talking. You're betting on a on a wild animal. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> who knows what's going to happen. And, and so I, I just I play the horses for fun and just to relax. And and and, and it's it's my favorite thing to do. Um, I don't go there. I, if I needed, if I needed a thousand dollars for something, I certainly wouldn't take. You'd you know, take five hundred there and be like, I can just double this at the track. And I would never ever do that. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, but when it comes to like derby time, and I've studied these horses for a few months, I'd like to have a nice roll to go up and yeah, do my thing. You know, but but, but it's, it's just it's money you put aside now to gamble instead of just whatever you have. Definitely, okay, definitely. I mean, like I drink a lot. And um, so I would go to the off track and, and play so, horses all day. Or like I, I play, like I, I'm from Vancouver, so I'd, play the, I'd go to Hastings and play the horses. And then when the horses were done, I wouldn't be done. And I'd go in and, and do, um, you know, play other tracks that are just being simulcasted. And I, if you keep playing and you get so drunk and now you're betting on Australia or Hong Kong, that's when you have to leave. Like if you ever <laughs> see me betting on Australian races, they go every five minutes. You're just, you're just following time zones. Like who's racing now? It's, it's impossible. You need, if, I always think if you don't study, you shouldn't be like making bets. I won't mention names, but there's a host of gambling shows on radio in Toronto that I've seen at the horse track and they don't have a form in front of them. They're just picking numbers they're wildly mm-hmm. and that i how do they have a gambling show if they can't read a racing form yeah it's uh it's just playing bingo they're just idiots they're frauds and, and i have a i have a web series i was talking about jimmy the bag um who is jimmy the bag and jimmy's a hardcore gambler are you jimmy i'm jimmy and and it's going to be a way for me to kind of get out now that you know i'm trying to start a family and all that stuff i'm I'm not going to have the uh, availability to be doing a lot of the stuff, so hopefully I can do it through Jimmy. Mm-hmm. Well, you're not trying to start a family. You, your your family has started. It it's, was successful. It is, you're, you're, the the third member is growing inside your fiance right now. Yeah, yeah, it's exciting. Are you going to raise this kid with any religion? Were you raised with a religion? No, I usually ask that. No, I wasn't raised with a religion. And Fong? My, no, no. Well, I mean, uh, Vietnamese is a Buddhist culture. Oh, okay. Um. There's traditions within their culture that they follow, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't say that she's religious and I'm not, and our children or child won't be. All right. You excited about this? Yeah, I'm very excited about this. I've always wanted. It. I'm I'm 37 now. I'm done a lot of the the partying and the wildness. Mm-hmm. I've always wanted to like be excited to go home. And I can tell you, with Fong pregnant, I'm not tonight. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I've always wanted. 
to be excited to go home and to be excited what was going on in your house. Mm-hmm. You know, your family. Because I remember I spent a lot of time with Kate Davis's family. Kate Davis is a very funny comic out here. And her house was so wild, so exciting. She had three kids. They were always up to something. And she was excited to go home to see the madness that was happening in her house. And I've always kind of wanted that. I've always, uh, it would be such a nice feeling to really want to go home. And um, I guess maybe coming from a family that broke up, uh, you know, when I was younger, that uh, maybe that's part of it, mm-hmm. you know. How long have you been with Fong now? Uh, eight, uh, eight years, uh, April 21st. Nice. Yeah, man. Got over that seven-year itch. Well, we're itchy. <laughs> but, yeah. But, yeah. It could be the bed bugs in Parkdale, though. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, we put bed bug free. Uh, bed bug free, but uh, there are uh, cockroaches. Uh, Someone's yeah. always watching. I uh, I had cockroaches when I lived in Scarborough. Uh, they were in my kitchen. They would scatter every time I turned the light on, so uh, I just didn't turn the light off, and they never came out. <laughs> That's an interesting idea. We've spoken about that, too. Well, we've got it pretty much under control right now, but you know they're there. Mm-hmm. Um, when's the, when's the baby due? Uh, end of August. End of August. Fong's going to have a hot summer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's wild, man. I, you know, this is the first time I've ever gone through, uh, you know, being around a pregnant woman. Um, very emotional. See, I've never wanted kids. Like, I think I wanted kids cause I was married, um, years ago, 10 years now. And I think at that point there was like i'm like i'll want some kids in five years but then when that ended i'm like i don't want to do that like i'm i'm very uh like i got bad ocd so i don't think i could handle the chaos of kids yeah like pick up your fucking toys you know but they can't pick up their toys they're kids babies (laughs) but yeah i kind of like the um the unknown of of, uh creating a life and seeing what what happens with it it's pretty exciting and and, uh you know leaving something passing something on you know um i'm excited for you pal yeah it's exciting stuff man it's exciting stuff that's why um i i let my family have kids and i let my friends have kids and i just i don't know it's not for me i don't think i think i'm just too selfish of a person i need a new act (laughs) <laughs> the, the dad jokes need to come out <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah need clean material so. um we uh that's pretty much uh all i wanted to, to well actually i could still talk to you for 10 more hours but we've already been in here over an hour well thanks so much for having me man <laughs> and um you know people get restless in these things they don't like to listen for too long so we're gonna wrap it up but uh we'll have you back someday where can the uh good folks the good listeners of the potato files here on never sleeps network find you uh well first off check out uh jimmy the bag jimmy the bag.com uh the show's called who is jimmy the bag and this is you who else is in this uh tim reichert created this comic out west and uh damon schrader a very funny comic is one of my buddies in the show uh, toby hargrave one of my buddies in the show you shot it here or there no i shot in vancouver and we want to do more with it because it's a real like um you know, we shoot a lot at the horse track and stuff like that. And it's just, there's no um, bullshit. Like uh, the the gambling side of things, it's it's all genuine. Like my my actual gambling book is used in the show. So every day I put out my action, Jimmy's action, and we send it out every single day. And um, it's just genuine. It's heartfelt. My mom plays my mom, you know, my nice. brother, my brother wraps the intro. Nice, like nice. it's all, it's all like, it's all heartfelt. And, and, Good family uh, affair. Yeah, man, it's funny. It's funny. Uh, the last episode we just finished, I um, I rob a Seven uh, Eleven in blackface, 
<laughs> and uh, my uh, lawyer is a black lawyer, and he despises me <laughs> in a way. He, I've never seen so much hate. Like, this guy just hates me so much, and he has to represent me. So Jimmy the Bag isn't doing very well if he's robbing 7-Elevens. <laughs> you know, Jimmy has ups and downs. <laughs> Just like any hey, gambler. Some some weeks you're up, and some, some weeks you're a felon. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, man. Well, everyone, be sure to check that out. JimmyTheBag.com. Find Sam Easton on your Twitter. Easy Easton, right? Yeah. Um, Easy Easton, and, uh, you know, find him at the clubs. He's a great comic, guys. Get out there and see him. Uh, that's pretty much our time for this week. Uh, looking for more of me? You can find me every Wednesday at the Dopin' Mike uh, at the Underground Comedy Club, host there. And, um, you know, Yuck Yucks puts me on stages too, so get out to those clubs. And that's about it, guys. Thanks for listening. And now my good friend Nigel Williams with the Pocket Dwellers is going to take you out. Bye-bye. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. 